about a minute and a half to turn around. I got turned around and I got hit by probably a 25 mile an hour wind and wind waves coming from multiple different directions and nothing but a rocky shore. <laughs> so that was, that was pretty exciting for a while. Episode 362, Marvin Owen is here to talk about his 1,200-mile kayaking trip down the Columbia River. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. Hi, friends. Thank you again for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I have Marvin Owen on the line today, and Marvin has some great stories to share with us. He has done twice now an epic river trip on the Columbia River, 1,200 miles, 80 days, kayaking the length of the Columbia, and I am excited to hear about this trip. The Columbia goes through such amazing areas through Canada and parts of Washington, and I just want to hear all about this. So Marvin grew up in Southern California, and over the years he worked his way north, uh, lived around the Columbia Gorge outside of Portland for a while, and now he calls the Olympic Peninsula home when he's not down south in Arizona. Marvin, welcome to the program. Thank you. So Marvin... Um, wow, I, I think this sounds like an amazing trip. 1,200 miles, kayaking, 80 days on the Columbia. This is the kind of stuff that we really, really like, so I'm excited to hear about it. But I want to point out to people, there's a little bit more to the story. You also built your own kayak for this trip. That's correct. With the help of a friend of, my, friend of mine, Joe Greenley at Redfish Kayaks. He's an amazing woodworker. Well, you sent me a picture of the kayak, and we're going to have to put that on our site if that's okay, because I want people to see it. It's it's made of wood. It's shaped for distance and speed, and it is beautiful, lovely boat. Thank you. Well, we want to talk about building the boat a little bit later on, because I think that that is uh, something that our listeners want to hear some about. But first, let's dive in a little bit more into who Marvin is. So, Marvin, have you always been interested in kayaking and adventure sports? Um, I've always been adventure sports. Um, I started out, you know, years ago windsurfing a lot. I did that for about 20 years. And then got into kayaking about 20 years ago, sea kayaking, and paddled Columbia River, the lower Columbia, quite a bit, um, Vancouver Island a lot, kayak camping and things like that with the family. Hmm, that sounds so nice. Now, I've... I have been to the Pacific Northwest several times on several trips, and uh, we've gone sailing in the San Juans. We have toured Vancouver Island and, and of course, taking the ferries to different locations through there. It seems so amazing to see the wildlife, even from the ferries that we've seen, but I can't imagine with a kayak. Have you encountered a lot of whales and things like that? Yes, I've, yeah, I've paddled with gray whales and some of the orcas and things like that up on Vancouver Island. Well, I'll bet you have some. Tell us a story, one whale story. Then we'll move back to <laughs> to the Columbia River. <laughs> okay. Well, one one trip we took up to uh, Johnstone Straits up on the northeast end of Vancouver Island. Uh, we were we did about a week long trip with the family and a couple other families, and we were paddling back to back, and uh, a couple of workers came along from behind us and just passed right under our boats and then kept on going. <laughs> <laughs> pretty amazing. <laughs> Do you ever worry that they might surface under you or try to take a chunk out of your boat? I I don't worry about that kind of thing. Um, you know, they're pretty intelligent animals. I don't think they like to eat fiberglass. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've heard stories of orca, especially, uh, like ramming a sailboat. They, no one knows for sure why they might do that, but maybe they think that it's a uh, a whale that's stranded that they might be able to get a, a meal from or something, but there's been some boat damage from whale strikes. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> but that's, you know, that's a sailboat. Fortunately, I haven't heard that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not a kayak, and the different profile completely, right? From right. under the water, it's not going to look the same, so um, it may not even be a concern. I was just kind of curious about it. Well, let's talk a little bit about what got you going out the door. So how did you get the idea to paddle the length of the entire Columbia River? Well, when I 
when I first got into kayaking, I was living in the Columbia Gorge, and the first time I put my boat in the river there, I had a thought of, what's at the other end of the river? <laughs> and where does it start? Um, several years later, I read a book, uh, Voyage of the Summer Sun by uh, Robin Cody, and that was my inspiration. He did it kind of a number of years ago in a canoe, and I thought, wow, that sounded like a lot of fun, and I could do that. And so I just went out and did it. Nice. So how did you do it? Um, describe, I guess, the type of kayak that you used, and then we also need to know how did you sleep, how did you eat, that sort of thing. So I'm, I used a sea kayak. So it's a 17 feet, 9 inches long. So were you camping on the, the shore of the river as you came through, or did you try to find hotels and things to stay in? Uh, mostly I stayed in, I just camped along the river. I just, when I got tired, I pulled over on spot and camped out. Um, I did have a few friends that lived along the Columbia, and I met a few folks on my first Columbia trip that I met up with from time to time to say hi and reconnect. Man, that sounds delightful. Did uh, So you carried most of your own food as well. So through that part of Canada, now when I say that part of Canada, um, we were talking before I hit record here, and I should ask you to fill in the details, but the Columbia starts west of Banff National Park in Canada, and so you're in the Canadian Rockies and then going through this river valley, but there's not that much population density through that area. So I'm just kind of thinking about resupplies and how much food do you have to carry to make it work. I mean, how many days did you go between towns on the river? I, usually I, I carried enough supplies for about two weeks. Um, most of the time I, I wasn't more than a week or so away from anywhere. You know, I passed through small towns and things like that. Um, nice. Probably north of Golden to Revelstoke is probably the most remote part of the river. Well, will you just uh, describe for us the route that the river takes? So the Columbia River starts at Columbia Lake, British Columbia. It's a spring-fed lake. It goes about 200 miles north and then heads south. Um, but there's about 600 miles are Canadian, and the other half is in the U.S. comes down through the across the border in the northeast end of Washington. And it comes through the central Washington um, down to Oregon. And then it's the Columbia River borders Oregon and Washington all the way to Astoria, Oregon. Mm, okay. Well, there's going to be a lot of change to the topography over that distance, obviously. I mean, that's a long way. But you also just described a lot of different types of, of land. How does the landscape change? Just, if you would, walk us through the beginning and, and take us all the way to the ocean. So starting up at... Uh, Columbia Lake. It it goes through. It starts Columbia Lake, goes through a short wetland area, up opens up into Invermere Lake, and then from there it goes back into uh, what's called a channel river. So it's so so multiple channels across the entire valley, and so you have to. It's kind of a maze. So <laughs> it's kind of that's probably the trickiest part of the river is trying to navigate through that and not run around and things like that, but it's just beautiful wetlands, um, and yeah, snow-capped mountains, it's just, just incredible. Mm, it sounds then, delightful. I want to ask you about that maze. I'm, I'm looking at the map right now. I pulled it up so I could see the course of the river while we were talking, and I'm looking at uh-huh. this valley, and I see it's like uh, lakes connected by channels, and then channels splitting and rejoining, and like you said, it looks like a maze. Is, yeah. is it well-marked? Or do you have to know what you're doing at every one of these junctions? Or is it just a matter of saying, well, there's more current going this way? Nothing is marked. <laughs> oh, man. Did you get lost? I did not. I actually, I, I didn't even have a map this time. I just, the first time I did the trip, I, I was going to these places and trying to find some maps and really could not find anything decent or worthwhile. So this time I didn't even bother. I just I was just winging it. Um, probably about fifty miles into it or so, I just happened to stop at this little cafe and I was chatting with these ladies that own the cafe. And they said, "Hey, do you have a map?" And I said, "No." Would you like one? <laughs> I go, "Sure." 
So they went back in their back room and printed me up this map that some folks made of that area. And it it really saved me. <laughs> About a quarter mile after I put in, after getting the map, I looked at the map and saw that there was a big log jam across the river that I needed to go around. And fortunately, I had the map to guide me. <laughs> wow. So did you have to do much portaging? Or were you able to, to just drift the whole way? Um, through that area, there was plenty of water all the way. Actually, there was a lot of water that last year. Um, but there's 14 dams on a border crossing to Portage and a set of rapids that I portaged around. So I was going to ask you about the border crossing. So since you brought it up, um, do you have to go through customs on the river or do you have to take out and actually go across a road or something to get through customs? I you have to I had to pull out and go across the border and yeah they checked me out and then I just put in a little farther down. Did you have any hiccups with that or was it pretty straightforward? Oh, it was fine. Um, yeah, there's differences between the first time and the second time. Um, yeah, the first time I pulled out right before the border, walked across the border, and then had to walk. I don't know, miles up the, <laughs> up the road, trying to find another spot to get back in. But this time, I, a friend had dropped my car just before the border, so I pulled out, just loaded up my car, and drove across. Oh, that makes it easier. Okay, so that's probably recommended then. You need some sort of a car shuttle to do the border crossing. It's helpful. Um, like I said, the first time I just had a, a cart for my kayak and walked it across, and that was pretty challenging just because of all the weight weight and the gear and the temperatures, <laughs> that sort of thing. Wow. Well, so you did the trip twice, the first time in 2008, and then again just last summer, 2017. Um, why did you decide to do the trip over again? I just needed something, a kickstart in my life to get me back out there. You know, I gave me something to work for and just give me something to do. Well, you know, you mentioned before we started that you're not a youngster anymore, and it happens to the best of us. But um, you say you're 62 years old, and you're seeing a lot of people who think that, oh, no, the days for that kind of stuff are over, but you don't see it that way at all. Not at all. Not at all. You have to stay active, and I think that's the key is just keep moving and doing what you want to do. I love it. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. And we have had so many people on the show that are in their 50s, 60s, even 70s, and that are still being active doing adventure sports. And I believe in that. I believe in that. I think it helps us to uh, prolong some of the issues with aging just by staying active, you know? Absolutely. Mm. So what inspiration would you have for people who might be seeing more years than they expected? You know, it sneaks up on us. But what kind of inspiration would you have for them to uh, get out and try stuff like this? I would say just, just to get started and just do it. Um, the first trip I did, I, I trained for about a year. I mean, I paddled six, seven days a week and I was training really hard the entire time thinking, you know, I have to be in the best shape ever to do something like this. And then just before I left for that trip, a friend of mine who has been a, a road biker forever, he said, you know what, you know, on a trip like that, you just kind of it doesn't really matter what kind of shape you're in. You just get started and you do what you can do. And then as the days go, you get better and better. And as long as you don't have a time limit, it's all good. <laughs> you know. Um, so actually, this trip, probably about three months before I was to leave, I actually tore a rotator cuff muscle. Oh. And so I, my shoulder was hurting. Um, I, so I ended up Paddling my boat literally one day before I did the trip. Mm. Um, one day was probably two months before I started the trip, and my shoulder was just on fire. So I was just doing other training and trying to heal my arm and <laughs> my shoulder. But after maybe 150 miles, my shoulder started feeling better, and I was good to go. Wow. I was going to say that, especially as we age. It's, it's horrible, but our bodies start to let us down sometimes, and we get injuries when we're learning some new activity. We can still train and get strong, but it, I think it's easy to get injuries. And, uh, yeah. But you found healing by action, right? You were out there doing it, and it got better. 
But you said about 150 miles. So how many days was that? Oh, it was probably the first two or three weeks. I I paddled about 100 miles, went in to see a registered massage therapist. He worked on me a little bit in Golden, and maybe another another week or so, and things started getting better. Nice. Sometimes you just have to work through stuff. That's just the way yep. it is. If you want to keep doing things, you have to keep working through stuff. Right, and you can't just quit. Wow. So something small happened. Marvin, I took off on a bunny trail there. Because first we did the cr- the border crossing, and then we started talking about um, the inspiration and staying active when you're older and everything else. But we were in the middle of going down the route of the river. <laughs> so Okay. <laughs> so go ahead and describe the rest of the route for us. I think we ended somewhere around the border. Okay. Well, actually, yep. Yeah. And so you go across the border, and you head into uh, Roosevelt Lake, which is about 120 miles long um, behind the Grand Coulee Dam. Um, then it goes, so you're going, the interesting part is it goes from alpine lakes and glaciers, glaciers and, you know, tall mountains up in the Canadian Rockies. And as you start getting farther south into Washington, it goes to more arid, drier, uh, less forested, a lot drier. Um, yeah, it's a, I'm sorry. That's all good. That's all good. So I guess here's something to think about. You're starting on the west side of the Rockies. And so, you know, the Rockies, the mountains, anytime you have an uplift in, in the topography, then air masses, as they lift over, they create rain, right? Or snow, or precipitation right. of some sort. And so you're in wet area, heavily forested and all that kind of stuff up in Canada. But by the time you get to Washington, now you're kind of on the east side of the Cascades, right? Correct. So the Cascades yep. are going to get their moisture on their west side, and then on the east of the Cascades, it's going to be a lot drier. So I guess that's what's going on here. Was the yep. the terrain a lot flatter? What could you see once you got into uh, northern Washington? So, yeah, it definitely gets a lot drier. Like I said, less forested. Um, a lot of basalt cliffs and things along the river. Um, yeah, it's like a more arid, almost deserty. The okay. temperature's a lot, lot warmer and, yeah, completely different topography. So and then, then as you go, farther south, what happens? So then as you go farther south, it, you get back in, like, down to the intertidal zones, uh, coastal zones, and so more influenced by the coastal weather and tides on the lower Columbia. So on that part of the river that is the border between Oregon and Washington, um, when do you first start to get the tidal influence from the Pacific? Just after the Bonneville Dam, which is down by Portland, Oregon. So you're quite a distance west by that point. Um, so how how yeah. much distance is there that's kind of a tidal river? I believe it's about 120 miles from Portland to Astoria on the river. Does the water get salty there? Kind of brackish? Yeah. A little bit, yeah. Yep, as you get farther south. Well, for people that don't know, um, describe the size of this river. By the time you get to the the Pacific, it's a pretty good-sized body of water. What, what are we talking about? The Columbia River, I think, is the fourth largest watershed in North America. And so right up in the beginning, like I said, it starts out at a lake, and it actually is a little stream going through a golf course up at Paramount Hot Springs is interesting <laughs> and i've heard it's about eight miles wide at the widest point down on the lower columbia wow that's that's uh, very it, wide yeah it, it varies it, it, it's amazing yeah. what about shipping traffic down there yeah starting at the like the tri-cities area up by the snake river you start getting commercial barge traffic and then down when you get down by portland you get more you know shipping traffic you know, pretty good ships. Cool. <laughs> you can see them coming. <laughs> so we kind of have a feel for the the nature of the river. And when I say a feel, we have the the briefest of outlines, bullet points. Whereas you have memories of every inch of this body of water. Here's a question for you, though. I was just thinking about it. You know, you did this trip in 2008, and you got to know that river intimately in that way, and uh, that gave you the knowledge to know better. But you did it again anyway. So I assume it must be worth it. Oh, absolutely. I'd 
recommend it to anybody. <laughs> what are some of your favorite parts of, of uh, kayaking this river? Probably my favorite part is Ken Basket Lake, which is north of Golden, which is also the most remote part of the river. Um, just the mountain scenery, you can see some of the glaciers from the Columbia Ice Fields. Um, it's, like I said, very remote, wild country. Mm. What about uh, grizzly bears? Probably my biggest fear. <laughs> <laughs> did you have any encounters with them? This trip I did not. The first trip I did have a bear come visit me one night when I was out in the middle of nowhere, and I he just left me alone. <laughs> so I was happy about that. So I how did you know he was like, there? You just saw him coming or what? Actually, I was in my tent, and the first thing I could do, I could smell him. And then I could hear snorting, and and I just I just stayed in my tent and didn't look. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you recommend? Did you did you keep bear spray or anything like that with you? I I I did carry bear spray. Um, I had a bear spray in my whistle. <laughs> How did you sleep that night after smelling and hearing the bear? <laughs> well, every hair in my body was standing up straight up for quite a while. <laughs> I can imagine. Wow. But after paddling 30-something miles that day, I was pretty tired, so I just fell asleep. Oh, <laughs> no man. Worries. Well, I think that Hollywood has tried to scare us about bears, you know, and uh, it's not yeah. its not that bears can't be dangerous. I mean, they're big mammals with, you know, big teeth and big claws, and, and they're very intelligent and they're very fast. But for the most part, they're not interested in tangling up with humans. I think when we get in trouble with bears is usually more our fault than theirs. Right. And I, I was, I'm very bear smart. You know, I don't cook in the same clothes I sleep in. And I, you know, I use bear cams and do all, the, do all that kind of stuff that you think is right. Um, you just can't, personally, you just can't worry, worry about that kind of stuff, you know. Something's going to happen, it's going to happen, and I'm okay. I think often, Marvin, it's the fear of the unfamiliar that holds us back. But if we look at the reality of it, you know, camping with bears is uh, is probably much safer than many things that we do on a daily basis. You know what I mean? I think, I think it's a lot safer than driving on the freeways. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no doubt about that. <laughs> Bam! Yeah, but it's funny though, isn't it? Because here you smell, you hear a bear, and you say you're, the hair is standing up on your arms for you know a long time. How come the freeway doesn't make you feel that way? <laughs> People just scare me. <laughs> <laughs> no. As I'm sure you know from listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, some of the safest and best snow conditions for backcountry skiing of the whole year happen in the springtime. And Bentgate has the gear you need. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Neversummer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes, and they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. They also rent out gear, so you can get your skis and your boots there, as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts, so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado. Or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear, as well as to get updates on all of their events. Well, the scenery sounds delightful, and you know, at first I thought, man, up in Canada, in the Rockies up there, it's got to be something else, but then you started talking about the basalt cliffs, and I thought, oh no, that would be beautiful too. Did you ever get to a point where you were like, okay, this part of the river, I just need to get through it, or was it all interesting? Oh, the entire river is interesting to me. Um, 
yeah, just going through the different changes and yeah, it's just the whole thing is just beautiful. There's different types of beauty. Well, will you pick a day or maybe a, an average of the days in your mind, but take us through what a day was like on the river, just from getting up and paddling and, and finding the camp and, and everything you'd normally do in a day? So I would just wake up whenever I woke up, um, would, you know, maybe get some food, coffee, pack up my gear and start paddling and, uh, and just paddled until, you know, I got hungry, stopped, found something interesting to look at, talked to some people, whatever it was. And just, yeah, I really enjoyed, you know, meeting different people along the way and things like that. Uh, paddled till I got tired, found a camp spot, got up and, did you ever have issues finding a place to camp, or is that pretty easy? Most of the time it was pretty easy. This last year, all the water levels are very high. So probably in the first, you know, in the wetlands, the water levels were so high, there was very little dry land. So the only places you could camp were there were a couple of road embankments where you could have a little square to pull out. Um, it just depended on where you were. Um, some areas it was nothing but, you know, rock, so there was nowhere to stop for miles. But, you know, I could always find a little little square to pull out somewhere. Did you have to be concerned with the river level rising during the night while you were asleep? Was that an issue? Actually, yes. Um, depending on, like I said, there's 14 dams on the river, and depending on if they're generating power or refilling the pond, some places the river can actually vary quite a bit. So I always drag my boat up pretty far up and tied it off so I wouldn't lose it. <laughs> well, is there any sort of a system or a way to be alerted when the water's rising? That would be my biggest concern, probably. I would I would fall asleep and probably not sleep well for worried that, you know, the water's going to surprise me in the middle of the night. I don't know of any warning system. The dam's just kind of do what they're going to do. Um, you, you can see the, the normal water level line on the beach. And, it, you know, it wouldn't fluctuate more than a, like a foot to two or three feet. So you could, you could pretty much judge where it was going to be. So just make sure that you're above that high water mark then. Yep. yep. Everything worked out. Oh, that's good. So was your favorite part the scenery or being in the boat and paddling or the camping or, or do you have a preference? I guess it's just the whole experience. You know, you just don't understand being in nature that long and what how your physiology changes, things like. Um, and part of that, I think, is depending on the electronics you bring. The first trip I took, it took 61 days. And I, I did bring a cell phone, but I, you know, coverage was more limited. And after about, I don't know, five or six weeks, I felt like a lot of natural instincts kept, kicked in. Like when you pulled up to a beach, you, you'd see tracks, you'd smell things, you know, it's just like you were an animal. <laughs> and that was really an interesting experience. This time, I had a cell phone, and I kept more in contact. I had better coverage, and I did not get that same experience. Mm. You know, being... being so, that was kind of an interesting difference. Yeah, I mean, I could see it as a disappointment, but maybe not. I mean, both both experiences could be really, really good. But would you recommend that people, I don't know, maybe have a cell phone or a spot device or something so that they would have it if they needed it, but then try to ignore it? Or would you say, no, that, it was good that, to stay in touch? I would have it for safety and try to ignore it. If I do it, yeah. So the next time, that's where I'll go. So you said those natural instincts kind of kicked in. Um, how does that feel? How do you know when that's happening? It was just kind of a strange phenomenon. I just kind of realized that what was going on, like more probably towards the end of the trip or maybe even after the trip. And I thought, wow, that was, you know, because normally I, you know, you pull up to a beach, you're not looking for animal tracks or fences and things like that. <laughs> You know, I've heard from a lot of people that you get into the rhythm of nature. It's a different rhythm. Things slow down a lot. And 
um, you're, it's almost like you're finding a new part of yourself when that happens, I think, because we're not so distracted, yeah. you know? Um, is that part of the experience that you look for? Is that, is that the reason why you do these trips? Yes, I would say so. So for people that have never experienced that, can you uh, share with us what the benefits are and why it's, it's worth looking for? Well, I think day-to-day life, you know, modern life is just too easy. You know, you, you get up out of your bed, you turn on the coffee maker, you know, you take a shower, and you don't realize, you know, living outdoors, how it's so much different. You know, you don't just jump in the shower, do your laundry, or anything like that. It, you know, it's like survival skills have to be in play. You know, personally, I find that if I, you know, your daily routine, like you just described, you get up, you take your shower, you go about your business, and you see the same things, you do the same things, and the days start to melt together. But when you're in nature, then it's it's almost, especially when you're traveling like this, it's almost like every day you're seeing something that jars you a little bit and wakes you up and says, wow, was that your experience? Yes. Tell yeah, us about, if you, if you don't mind, tell us about one of those experiences where you just, you had a Something happened that you were like, wow, I will remember that for the rest of my life. <laughs> well, again, up on Ken Basket Lake, it was uh, this last year, I was familiar with all the forest fires up in Canada and Oregon, Washington. There was a lot of smoke. So once I got to Golden, the forest fires kicked in and it was just completely smoke. Mm. And so on Ken Basket Lake, the first time I trekked, the local said, told me, if you see a gray cloud coming down the down the lake, you have about 15 minutes or so to be off the lake because it's just a big wall of wind and waves are going to hit you. So that was a bit, of, a bit of a concern. So one day I woke up and I was about halfway up the lake, probably about 40 miles or so from anyone. The weather looked okay. I couldn't see the weather because of the smoke too much, but the water didn't look bad. So I packed up, paddled out, got about a mile and a half from my campsite, and I had about 90 seconds when I saw that big gray wall coming at me. Oh, no. <laughs> so I had about a minute and a half to turn around. I got turned around, and I got hit by probably a 25-mile-an-hour wind and wind waves coming from multiple different directions, and nothing but a rocky shore. <laughs> so that was that was pretty exciting for a while. And so I ended up paddling I was paddling back towards where I started and found a little little stretch of sand and just drove my boat in there and hung out for a few hours waiting out the weather. So that was that was pretty exciting. <laughs> oh, so what would you do if you got completely I don't know on a kayak, you don't necessarily get swamped, but you're going to get flipped sometimes, or you could get bashed against the rocks. What would you do? Uh, that was my concern. Um, yeah, if I were to have turned over at that point, my my boat would have just been smashed up against the rocks, and I would have been out in the middle of nowhere. But uh, we just kept it all together, and everything worked out. You know, I think when we keep a, a cool head and take appropriate action, generally things are going to work out. But man, so how big did the waves get? Uh, they were probably about two to three foot wind waves. It was, it was pretty crazy, pretty crazy stuff. <laughs> and so I'm thinking about this, like a three foot wave probably has white caps on it, you know, and it's blowing spray all over the place, but that would dwarf your boat. How high does your boat sit out of the water? Oh, probably just three or four inches. <laughs> but I, <laughs> but I, I, I do have a tag that's wearing a spray skirt and, you know, so I can get, take quite a bit of well, it's not not like the boat's going to get swamped unless you do go over and fall out. But yeah. Wow. Does it have float bags, stuff like that? So it, if if you had to swim out of it, it would at least not you know get washed under with all the weight that's in it. Yeah, a sea kayak has a uh, watertight compartment in the front and back, so it yeah it won't just sink. So at least you don't have to worry about it completely sinking and being gone. But <laughs> no. <laughs> trying to catch it. Right. Man. So there's another side to this too, and that is that you're doing this alone. Yep. Yes. Now, a lot of people would say, I love adventure, but I want other people there because, you know, that's part of the fun of it. And then other, uh, others say, no, that 
that alone time, that quiet solitude is, is really what it's about. Where do you fit on that spectrum? Um, a little of both. You know, I enjoy, you know, traveling with people. I actually, a friend did come and paddle with me for a few days down in Portland. Um, and that was great in itself. But it's also having to rely on just yourself and in nature. That was kind of an experience I enjoy. Well, let's go back to the first trip. Um, I know that spending that much time alone and doing that kind of a distance, it had to change you in some way. How do you think it changed how you perceived yourself? I think I learned that we don't really need as much as we think we need. Mm. You know, if I can camp out, you know, in a little tent for two months and cook on a cook stove, like a little camp stove, (laughs) you realize you don't need nearly as much as we need. Is that liberating? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking about mortgages and bills to pay and cars and, you know, all that kind of stuff that, that are the entrapments and also the things we expect to have, right? Right. So I don't worry about that kind of stuff anymore. You know, money really not important. The quality of life is probably the most important to me nowadays. So do you think that after the first big trip, you started living your life a little differently then? Yes, yes. I just didn't need as much stuff to make me happy, I guess, I'd say. So are you more more content that way? Yes, I'm not, you know, I don't need all the things we think we need in life, you know, the electronics and the luxuries and things like that. It's like the basics are probably more rewarding. Wow. Well, that sounds good. You just painted a picture of a what a lot of people I think would look at as a really peaceful lifestyle. You know, it's funny, I was interviewing some through hikers and they were talking about how when they come off the trail, essentially they're homeless people, you know, they're dirty, they're grungy, they're living out of a pack. And, and they said, well, essentially we're homeless. And I thought, well, that's an interesting way to think of it, you know, but I think there's a fine line between homeless and living outdoors and being free. Do you know where that dividing line is? Yeah. What what would you say it is? Um, I'm not sure. It's kind of a fascinating thought to me. I mean, I know a lot of people, especially young guys growing up, they're like, hey, you know what? I'm going to live out on my car for a year because I'm going to save a ton of money. And they they do it. And sometimes it's a really successful experience. Sometimes it's not. So I I don't know. Maybe this is a bunny trail we don't need to go down. But it's so fascinating to think about all the entrapments that we have on a day-to-day basis. And then this kind of uh, mysterious, romantic idea of what if I could live without that stuff, you know? And you've done that a little bit through these boat trips. Right, right. I'll, I'll go for the boat trips. Mm, beautiful. <laughs> well, it sounds so nice. So you mentioned, I don't want to give up on the river quite yet. Uh, you mentioned that you had to portage or portage, however you want to say it, some rapids up in Canada. Um, is there a lot of that or is it just like one big thing you got to worry about? I am not a whitewater kayaker, so rapid, I'm not comfortable in whitewater, especially in a sea kayak. So there is just one set of rapids up north of Golden that I did portage around. Um, there was another section of fast water. I don't know. I guess you'd call it class one or maybe two. I'm, I'm not sure. Down by the border, just before the border. That was a pretty interesting day for me. I did like 22 miles in just under three hours. So it was moving. (laughs) So it was moving pretty good. Um, Yeah. So do you prefer being on kind of the frog water, as as a whitewater boater would say it, the the lakes and things? I like like the the moving water, but not the rapids. (laughs) Okay, so a, a nice current is good, but not the rapids. So when you're on the lakes, I mean, you went through a lot of very big bodies of water that aren't going to have much discernible current at all. Was that exhausting or was it just, yeah, it's part of it. It's just part of it. I mean, yeah, some days you get a headwind and some days you don't. Um, So yeah, it's just part of it. You just, you know, if it's, if you're getting beat up, you only do a few miles. If you're, if you're not, you can do a lot of miles. (laughs) Nice. Down through the, what's called the Hanford Reach, where the Hanford Nuclear Reservation is. You're not allowed to stop, so that was like a 48-mile day oh. with moving water, you know, so it was a, a relatively easy day, but you put on a lot of miles. 
I think just sitting in the boat that long could get tough. <laughs> well, that's where the, the redfish kayak comes in. The boat was built beautifully. They just fit like a glove. Spring is here and camping season is upon us. Visit our site at 180tac.com for your next camp stove. The 180 stove and smaller 180 flame are combustible fuel stoves, which are designed to burn the fuel that nature provides you at your campsite. There's no need to lug heavy and bulky fuel canisters along with you on the trail. The 180 flame and 180 stove are built in America and have no moving parts to fail you in the field. Check them out at www.180tack.com. Your purchase helps support the Adventure Sports Podcast. So you built your boat, and uh, if you uh, listeners, if you want to see a picture of it, go to adventuresportspodcast.com, and we'll put a picture up. Lovely, lovely wooden boat. How much did it weigh in? It's, a, let's see, I think it weighed in at 45 pounds. It's actually the same length, same size as my carbon Kevlar boat. It weighs five pounds less. Really? Made out of wood, and it weighs less than your carbon and Kevlar. And it has positive buoyancy as well. Yeah, because <laughs> it's not just a matter of displacement. Now the wood is also going to float wild. Right. So how did you manage to make it so light? Um, well, the, the cedar strips that you start with are 5 eighths wide by about 3 sixteenths of an inch thick. So it's, you know, fairly thin. And cedar is really light. So yeah, just, And then it just has a one layer of glass inside and out protecting epoxy. Yeah, they're just pretty light, lightweight. How fragile do you think they are? Now, if you got stuck in a surprise rapid, um, what kind of a beating could they take before you're going to be in trouble? Um, I wouldn't say you want to beat it up on the rocks. (laughs) They're very strong, very durable, like in waves and things like that. I think if I really bashed it into a rock on the white water, you know, I'd probably have a pretty good hole. But, uh, yeah, they're very well-built boats. Well, tell me about the process of building a boat like that. I have heard um, some people that, I mean, building the boat is their dream trip. It's not the trip itself. It's it's building the vessel. You know what I mean? So right, what was your right. experience? Oh, uh, just fantastic. I I built it in Joe's shop. So he, you know, I rented space in the shop. And so, you know, he was there part of the time. I could ask him questions and look at other boats and things to, guide me along but yeah it was just just a great adventure in itself um i did take a couple of classes from joe uh, several years previous and that summer was just the time that i had that i could go ahead and build one for myself how long does it take to build one i think on the average they say about three to four hundred hours i i built mine in two months i worked Long hours, pretty much every day, and just got through it. Now, working that many hours on it, did it get tedious, or was it just part of the the fun? It was just part of the fun for me. Yeah, every step was a challenge, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, especially when you know you get a couple of tough spots, and I remember getting to one one spot in particular, and Joe came by and he says, "Okay, you're at the most challenging part of the whole boat." See you later. I'm going on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> he timed that just right, didn't he? Yep. So <laughs> <laughs> well, when he got back from vacation, I, I had actually just cut the entire boat in half and put in a walnut strip down the middle. And he goes, huh, nobody's ever done that before. <laughs> <laughs> a new solution. <laughs> yeah. Well, did that work? Was that the right solution? Oh, yeah. It worked beautiful. Yeah. But, yeah, it was a lot of fun. You know, I'm gathering just from talking to you, Marvin, that you're the kind of guy who is good at being present in the moment, enjoying the task at hand, whether that's paddling across the the lake or building the boat. Um, Not everybody has that. I think it's a gift. So am I right about that? I think so. I guess I've never thought about it, but yeah, I think 
you're probably right. Mm. You know, I think that everybody or anybody can experience that, but I'll just confess, I, you know, I've been raising my family and life has been extraordinarily busy. And when I have a task to do, I am, I'm almost always looking for the quickest way to the end because there's so much to be done. And that makes me feel harried and I don't enjoy the task as much as I should. And it's a bad habit, right? I need to get past that. So, right. you know, I, I think of you on this solo kayak trip and I think, oh, now that would fix that problem. Or I think of you building the boat. And it's the same thing. It's like, wow, to be able to just focus on one task and do each step correctly. And then at the end of each day to look at it and say, huh, that's what I got done today. That must have been delightful. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was in the same boat as you are presently, raising a family, working hard. Yeah, so now it's all different. I can enjoy life a little better. Mm. Well, that's neat. I love the idea of building the, the boat. And then when you first put the boat in the water and paddled it around, did it do what you thought it would? Was it exactly what you had hoped? Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's a great design, great feel. Yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> so were you grinning ear to ear? Or are you one of these stoic people that just says, all right, it's done? <laughs> oh, that's dope. <laughs> it, it, it exploded. <laughs> And you were probably relieved to find out that it worked well loaded then. It did. That was kind of interesting. Jumping in for the first time fully loaded, fascinating water. I wondering if it was going to work or not. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent 400 hours building this boat. <laughs> I'm going to load it up. I'm going to throw it in this water. Wow. <laughs> I hope it floats. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's crazy, man. Uh, what, a, what an amazing life experience, though. Good for you. I love it. Can you, uh, you know, we're actually almost out of time, believe it or not. I've enjoyed visiting with you so much, but I'm sure there's so much more that we could cover. I mean, I I wanted to know if you started to feel waterlogged or if you were able to be dry enough that it was not a problem. There's one question. I was plenty dry all the time. No, I never, never felt waterlogged. Um, actually, I carried a dry suit with me the entire time. Never used it once. Mm. What about weather beaten? I mean, you're out in the weather, long hours every day. For the most part, it wasn't bad. I mean, you know, I had a few, just a few days of rain. Actually, <laughs> got nailed on the beach down by Portland for three days, maybe another rain. But <laughs> that was probably the worst day. But uh, most of the time, it was it was pretty nice. I I started in July, so it was throughout the summer, so it it was actually pretty warm most of the time. Wow. Well, will you share with us a story, just anything that stands out now about something that inspired you or uh, was life-impacting or scary or or just really interesting to you from these two trips? Um, I think it's probably the most, the best thing was, uh, like we talked about earlier, just getting that feeling of being back in nature. And that was probably, that's probably the most memorable part of everything. Well, what's your next trip then? What do you uh, do? You have a goal, something else set out there to entice you and pull you forward. I don't have anything specific in mind right now. That's why I keep listening to your listening to your podcast. I'm waiting for a say. Hey, I want to do that one. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, you know, yeah. we have over 350 different people that are doing different things on the show now. So I bet there's something there that'll catch your ear. I think there is. <laughs> That's cool. Well, what would be your parting advice to the listeners then if they want to do something similar? Um, what advice do you have for us? I'd say just to just to go do it. Um, you know, be safe. Um, you know, don't just be crazy and do something you're not that's over your head. But uh, if you want to do something, just just go get started at it and follow through. Enjoy the adventure. Mm. You know, I, I'm sure that. From the time you first paddled a sea kayak until now, you've had just amazing amount of learning, especially learning how to build your own boat, learning how to go on overnight trips and then extended trips. And did that kind of just add a, I don't know, a, a new purpose or meaning or or just a hobby even to your life? Was it was it worth the effort? I guess that's the question. Oh, absolutely worth the, worth the effort. Um, 
uh, I've always been kind of outdoorsy and, you know, grew up on the water, you know, sailing boats and things like that and camping and, yeah, it's all good. Right on. Well, Marvin, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate your story. I think it's fantastic what you did twice. And uh, you make me jealous because I've never done an extended water trip like that. I really want to do that one of these days. So, But thank you very much for sharing it with us. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Oh, you bet. And for, yeah, for all the listeners out there, um, wow, doesn't this sound enticing? You think about the idea of, of paddling on an extended trip like that and getting in touch with nature and finding that new rhythm and learning about yourself and about this world we live in. Just sounds wonderful. Whatever it is you choose to do, set a goal, get out there and, and pursue it. And until the next show, make sure that you have some fun. All right, coming up on the next episode, we're going to have Matt Siegel here. He's a professional rock climber, and we're going to talk all things rock climbing. Until then, do us a favor and consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. You can also go to our site at adventuresportspodcast.com and find that big red patron button. Click that and help support the show. You can also join our Facebook group and chime in on some adventures others are having, or maybe do a little write-up about the adventure you just had. Until the next one, guys, get out and have some fun.